You're listening to the Redfield Arts Audio Podcast. A Child's Christmas in Wales by Dylan Thomas. Narrated by Mark Redfield. Music arranged and performed by Colleen McTeague. One Christmas was so much like the other in those years around the sea town corner now. Out of all sound except the distant speaking of the voices I sometimes hear a moment before I sleep. That I can never remember whether it snowed for six days and six nights when I was twelve, or whether it snowed for twelve days and twelve nights when I was six. All the Christmases rolled down towards the two-tongued sea like a cold and headlong moon bundling down the sky that was our street, and they stop at the rim of the ice-edged fish-freezing waves, and I plunge my hands into the snow and bring out whatever I can find. In goes my hand into the wool-white bell-tongued ball of holidays resting at the rim of the carol-singing sea, and out come Mrs. Prothero and the firemen. It was on the afternoon of the day of Christmas Eve, and I was in Mrs. Prothero's garden, waiting for cats, with her son Jim. It was snowing. It was always snowing at Christmas. December, in my memory, is white as Lapland, although there were no reindeers. But there were cats. Patient, cold, and callous, our hands wrapped in socks, we waited to snowball the cats, sleek and long as jaguars and horrible-whiskered, spitting and snarling, they would slide and sidle over the white-backed garden walls, and the lynx-eyed hunters, Jim and I, fur-capped in moccasin trappers from Hudson Bay, off Mumbles Road, would hurl our deadly snowballs at the green of their eyes. The wise cats never appeared. We were so still, Eskimo-footed Arctic marksmen in the muffling silence of the eternal snows, eternal ever since Wednesday, that we never heard Mrs. Prothero's first cry from her igloo at the bottom of the garden. Or if we heard it at all, it was to us like the far-off challenge of our enemy and prey, the neighbor's polar cat. But soon the voice grew louder. "'Fire!' cried Mrs. Prothero, and she beat the dinner gong. And we ran down the garden, with the snowballs in our arms, towards the house, and smoke, indeed, was pouring out of the dining room. And the gong was bombulating, and Mrs. Prothero was announcing ruin like a town crier in Pompeii. This was better than all the cats in Wales standing on the wall in a row. We bounded into the house, laden with snowballs, and stopped at the open door of the smoke-filled room. Something was burning all right. Perhaps it was Mr. Prothero, who always slept there after midday dinner with a newspaper over his face. But he was standing in the middle of the room saying, I had a fine Christmas, and smacking at the smoke with a slipper. Call the fire brigade, cried Mrs. Prothero as she beat the gong. They won't be here, said Mr. Prothero. It's Christmas. There was no fire to be seen, only clouds of smoke and Mr. Prothero standing in the middle of them, waving his slipper as though he were conducting. Do something, he said, and we threw 
all our snowballs into the smoke. I think we missed Mr. Prothero and ran out of the house to the telephone box. Let's call the police as well, Jim said, and the ambulance, and Ernie Jenkins, he likes fires. But we only called the fire brigade, and soon the fire engine came and three tall men in helmets brought a hose into the house, and Mr. Prothero got out just in time before they turned it on. Nobody could have had a noisier Christmas Eve. And when the firemen turned off the hose and were standing in the wet, smoky room, Jim's aunt, Miss Prothero, came downstairs and peered in at them. Jim and I waited very quietly to hear what she would say to them. She said the right thing always. She looked at the three tall firemen in their shining helmets, standing among the smoke and cinders and dissolving snowballs, and she said, Would you like anything to read? Years and years ago, when I was a boy, when there were wolves in Wales, and birds the colour of red flannel petticoats whisked past the harp-shaped hills, when we sang and wallowed all night and day in caves that smelt like Sunday afternoons in damp front farmhouse parlours, and we chased with the jawbones of deacons, the English and the bears, before the motor car, before the wheel, before the duchess-faced horse, when we rode the daft and happy hills bareback, it snowed and it snowed. But here a small boy says, It snowed last year too. I made a snowman, and my brother knocked it down, and I knocked my brother down, and then we had tea. But that was not the same snow, I say. Our snow was not only shaken from whitewashed buckets down the sky. It came shawling out of the ground and swam and drifted, out of the arms and hands and bodies of the trees. Snow grew overnight on the roofs of the houses like a pure and grandfather moss, minutely ivied the walls and settled on the postman, opening the gate like a dumb, numb thunderstorm of white, torn Christmas cards. Were there postmen then too, with sprinkling eyes and wind-cherried noses on spread frozen feet, they crunched up to the doors and mittened on them manfully. But all that the children could hear was the ringing of bells. You mean that the postman went rat-a-tat-tat and the doors rang? I mean that the bells that the children could hear were inside them. I only hear thunder sometimes, never bells. There were church bells, too. Inside them? No, no, no. In the bat-black snow-white belfries tugged by bishops and storks, and they rang their tidings over the bandaged town, over the frozen foam of the powder and ice cream hills, over the crackling sea. It seemed that all the churches boomed for joy under my window, and the weathercocks crew for Christmas on our fence. Get back to the postman. They were just ordinary postmen, fond of walking and dogs and Christmas and the snow. They knocked on the doors with blue knuckles. Ours has got a black knocker. And then they stood on the white welcome mat in the little drifted porches and huffed and puffed, making ghosts with their breath, and jogged from foot to foot like small boys wanting to go out. And then the presents, and then the presents after the Christmas box. 
and the cold postman with a rose on his button nose tingled down the tea tray slithering run of the chilly glinting hill. He went in his ice-bound boots like a man on fishmonger slabs. He wagged his bag like a frozen camel's hump, dizzily turned the corner out of one foot, and by God he was gone. Get back to the presents. There were the useful presents, engulfing mufflers of the old coach days, and mittens made for giant sloths, zebra scarves of a substance like silky gum that could be tug-of-war down to the galoshes, blinding tam like patchwork tea-cozies and bunny-suited busbies and balaclavas for victims of head-shrinking tribes. From aunts who always wore wool next to the skin, there were mustached and rasping vests that made you wonder why the aunts had any skin left at all. And once I had a little crocheted nose bag from an aunt now, alas, no longer whinnying with us. And picture books in which small boys, though warned with quotations not to, would skate on Farmer Giles' pond and did and drowned. And books that told me everything about the wasp, except why. Go on to the useless presents. Bags of moist and many-colored jelly babies and a folded flag and a false nose and a tram conductor's cap and a machine that punched tickets and rang a bell. Never a catapult. Once, by a mistake that no one could explain, a little hatchet. And a celluloid duck that made, when you pressed it, a most unduck-like sound. A mewing moo that an ambitious cat might make who wished to be a cow. And a painting book in which I could make the grass, the trees, the sea, and the animals any color I please. And still, the dazzling sky-blue sheep are grazing in the red field under the rainbow-billed and pea-green birds. Hard-boiled, toffee, fudge and all sorts, crunches, cracknell, humbugs, glaciers, marzipan, and butter Welsh for the Welsh. And troops of bright tin soldiers who, if they could not fight, could always run. And snakes and families and happy ladders. And easy hobby games for little engineers complete with instructions. Oh, easy for Leonardo. And a whistle to make the dogs bark, to wake up the old man next door, to make him beat on the wall with his stick to shake our picture off the wall. And a pack of cigarettes. You put one in your mouth and you stood at the corner of the street and you waited for hours in vain for an old lady to scold you for smoking a cigarette. And then, with a smirk, you ate it. And then it was breakfast under the balloons. Were there uncles, like in our house? There were always uncles at Christmas, the same uncles. And on Christmas mornings, with dog-disturbing whistle and sugar fags, I would scour the swathed town for the news of the little world and find always a dead bird by the post office or the white deserted swings, perhaps a robin all but one of his fires out, men and women wading, scooping back from chapel with taproom noses and wind-bust cheeks, all albinos, huddled their stiff black jarring feathers against the irreligious snow. Mistletoe hung from the gas brackets in all the front parlors, and there was sherry and walnuts and bottled beer and crackers by the dessert spoons, and cats in their fur about to watch the fires, 
and the high leap fire spat all ready for the chestnuts and the mullein pokers. Some few large men sat in the front parlours, without their collars, uncles almost certainly, trying their new cigars, holding them out judiciously at arm's length, returning them to their mouths, <coughs> coughing, then holding them out again as though waiting for the explosion. And some few small aunts, not wanted in the kitchen, nor anywhere else for that matter, sat on the very edges of their chairs, poised and brittle, afraid to break like faded cups and saucers. Not many, those mornings, trod the piling streets, an old man always, fawn-bowled, yellow-gloved, and at this time of year with spats of snow, would take his constitutional to the white bowling green and back as he would take it wet or fire on Christmas Day or Doomsday. Sometimes two hale young men with big pipes blazing, no overcoats or windblown scarves, would trudge, unspeaking, down to the forlorn sea to work up an appetite, to blow away the fumes, who knows, to walk into the waves until nothing of them was left but the two curling smoke clouds of their inextinguishable briars. Then I would be slap-dashing home, the smell of gravy of the dinners of others, the bird smell, the brandy, the pudding and mince, coiling up to my nostrils, when out of a snow-clogged side lane would come a boy, the spit of myself, with a pink-tipped cigarette and the violet past of a black eye, cocky as a bullfinch, leering all to himself. I hated him on sight and sound and would be about to put my dog whistle to my lips and blow him off the face of Christmas when suddenly he, with a violet wink, put his whistle to his lips and blew so stridently, so high, so exquisitely loud that gobbling faces, their cheeks bulged with goose, would press against their tinseled windows the whole length of the white echoing street. For dinner, we had turkey and blazing pudding, and after dinner, the uncle sat in front of the fire, loosened all buttons, put their large, moist hands over their watch chains, groaned a little, and slept. Mothers, aunts, and sisters scuttled to and fro, bearing tureens. Aunt Bessie, who had already been frightened twice by a clockwork mouse, whimpered at the sideboard and had some elderberry wine. The dog was sick. Auntie Dozy had to have three aspirins, but Auntie Hannah who liked port, stood in the middle of the snowbound backyard, singing like a big-bosomed thrush. I would blow up balloons to see how big they would blow up too, and then, when they burst, which they all did, the uncles jumped and rumbled. In the rich and heavy afternoon, the uncles breathing like dolphins and the snow descending, I would sit among festoons and Chinese lanterns and nibbled dates and try to make a mottled man of war, following the instructions for little engineers, and produce what might be mistaken for a seagoing tramcar. Or I would go out, my bright new boots squeaking into the white world, onto the seaward hill to call on Jim and Dan and Jack, and to pad through the still streets, leaving huge deep footprints on the hidden pavements. I bet people will think there have been hippos. What would you do if you saw a hippo coming down our street? I'd go like this. Bang! 
I'd throw him over the railings and roll him down the hill, and then I'd tickle him under the ear, and he'd wag his tail. What would you do if you saw two hippos? Iron flanked and bellowing, he hippos clanked and battered through the scudding snow towards us as we passed Mr. Daniel's house. Let's post Mr. Daniel a snowball through his letterbox. Let's write things in the snow. Let's write, Mr. Daniel looks like a spaniel all over his lawn. Or we walked on the white shore. Can the fishes see it snowing? The silent one-clouded heavens drifted on to the sea. Now, we were snow-blind travellers lost on the north hills, and vast dewlap dogs with flasks round their necks ambled and shambled up to us baying excelsior. We returned home through the poor streets, where only a few children fumbled with bare red fingers in the wheel-rutted snow, and catcalled after us, their voices fading away as we trudged uphill into the cries of the dock birds and the hooting of the ships out in the whirling bay. And then at tea the recovered uncles would be jolly, and the ice cake loomed in the centre of the table like a marble grave. Auntie Hannah laced her tea with rum, because it was only once a year. Bring out the tall tales now, that we told by the fire as the gaslight bubbled like a diver. Ghosts wooed like owls in the long nights, when I dared not look over my shoulder. Animals lurked in the cubbyhole under the stairs where the gas meter ticked. And I remember that we went singing carols once when there wasn't the shaving of a moon to light the flying streets. At the end of a long road was a drive that led us to a large house and we stumbled up the darkness of the drive that night, each one of us afraid, each one holding a stone in hand in case and all of us too brave to say a word. The wind through the trees made noises as of old and unpleasant and maybe web-footed men wheezing in caves. We reached the black bulk of the house. What shall we give them, Hark the Herald? No, Jack said. Good King Wenceslas, I'll count three. One, two, three, and we began to sing. Our voices high and seemingly distant in the snow fell to darkness around that house that was occupied by nobody we knew. We stood close together near the dark door. And then a small, dry voice, like the voice of someone who had not spoken for a long time, joined our singing. A small, dry eggshell voice from the other side of the door. A small, dry voice through the keyhole. And when we stopped running, we were outside our house. The front room's lovely balloons floated under the hot water bottle gulping gas. Everything was good again and shone over the town. Perhaps it was a ghost, Jim said. Perhaps it was trolls, Dan said, who was always reading. Let's go in and see if there's any jelly left, Jack said. And we did that. Always on Christmas night there was music. An uncle played the fiddle, a cousin sang Cherry Ripe, and another uncle sang Drake's Drum. It was very warm in the little house. Auntie Hannah, who had got on to the parsnip wine, sang a song about bleeding hearts and death, and then another, 
in which she said her heart was like a bird's nest. And then everybody laughed again. And then I went to bed, looking through my bedroom window, out into the moonlight and the unending smoke-colored snow, I could see the lights in the windows of all the other houses on our hill and hear the music rising from them up the long, steadily falling night. I turned the gas down. I got into bed. I said some words to the close and holy darkness. And then I slept. Now available from Redfield Arts Audio. Marley was dead, to begin with. There is no doubt whatever about that. The register of his burial of his approach. Bah, said Scrooge. Humbug. Christmas a humbug, Uncle. You don't mean that. I am who are you? Ask me who I was. Who were you then? In life I was your partner, Jacob Marley. And what are you? I am the ghost of Christmas past. Why, it's old Fezziwig! Bless his heart! It's Fezziwig alive again! Come in! Come in and know me better, man! I am the ghost of Christmas present. Look upon me! As the last stroke ceased to vibrate, he remembered the prediction of old Jacob Marley and, lifting up his eyes, beheld a solemn phantom, draped and hooded, coming like a mist along the ground towards him. A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens, as told by Mark Redfield. Music and sound design by Jennifer Rouse, from Redfield Arts Audio.